0: creator of all mankind, giver of life, redeemer, restorer, Holy Father, we come before you right now thanking you for being such a wonderful God. Bless us during this session as we dig into a radical topic, a topic that divides families, a topic that causes lots of consternation and conflict, Lord. Help us to approach it from a Bible-based, Christ-centered, practical perspective, so that today, instead of just heat, we can help to shed light on the subject, so we can be kind and loving people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The military and morality. I'm going to ask you to start with, how many of you I'm a general question, how many of you have been in the military, are in the military, have a close friend, close friend or relative who is or has been in the military? Raise your hand. Don't be afraid. I want to get a quick overview. Man, that's like 70% of you. Ah okay. That's the first question. Second thing, second thing, yes, I'm not talking here in a vacuum, folks. Why do I say that? Two things have happened to me. One, I have gone through a transition, a change, a transformation in my own perspectives on this issue. Why? I have to be faithful to the weight of biblical evidence. You know what I mean by the weight of biblical evidence? Sometimes there's a little bit of fuzziness here, a fuzziness there, uh, but you know what, when you study the overall trend of the Scriptures, it becomes clear. Are we together? so we're looking at the weight of biblical evidence so I've had to have go through a transformation a transition a change in my thinking because of that okay number two no I don't have anybody in my immediate family that I know of who's been in the military I grew up in South Africa but you know what just this year I had the opportunity I'm not saying the privilege I'm saying the opportunity I was called and said hey dr. Dupre, would you come and help us what's happening this father said I have a son I have a son. He joined the military during his uh, time at one of our Adventist colleges. He joined the military. They agreed to pay for his education. Are, we, are you with me? He has finished his education. He joined. The father said, this is the father, uh, this is the story. He joined when he was having a personal spiritual struggle. Now he's had a radical reconversion. He wants out of the military. But the military has paid for all its education. You know what that means? He owes the military. Right? Big time. Why? They trained him as a medical doctor. He owed them big time. The father says, can you please help us? I said what can I do he said we would like to call you in because my son is being court-martialed did you hear that court martialed I've got the letters here I got the information they wrote to me please come and help us okay so I, I flew down they oh sorry they flew me down they flew me down to the place and I got right here and I have the entire statement of this young man on this and so this year yes I was involved as a so-called expert witness on the issue of In a court-martial on the issue of the military I had the chance to participate in that entire story so are you ready that's a little bit of background and yes I'm gonna go through quickly a lot of material here I want to share with you stuff some of that will surprise you and some of that might uh, irk you Uh, some of that might urge you on listen to this story number one his name was Joel David Klimkiewicz. Now, I've never met him. I don't even know if he's here at the meetings. He might be here. He was a second combat engineer, uh, a combat engineer with a second combat uh, engineer battalion, et cetera, et cetera. And they asked him to pick up a weapon. Klimkiewicz, whose military performance and personal life underwent a drastic and positive change after a Christian conversion, he joined the Adventist Church in October 2002. Then he re-enlisted for another tour of duty. After that time, the then Lance Corporal learned that non-competency is the Church's recommendation and upon personal reflection, he came to the conclusion that he could not take up a weapon to kill another person. He then asked for assignments where he could serve without carrying a weapon, volunteering, for example, to work on clearing land, landmines in iraq the marine corps refused his request culminating in the court martial that uh, uh, reduced his rank klimkowitz's rank and led to a bad conduct discharge and a felony conviction uh, record following the jail sentence he spent seven months in jail i got the story of him Joel Klinkowitz, I'm not sure if I even pronounce his name right, but he spent time in prison because he refused to pick up a weapon because he had gone through a change of mind when he became an Adventist. He said, I cannot kill. Now, if you think that's unusual, I have here another report. This was in a 2003 article by Bill Johnson, editor of the Review. And he says, Adventists in Korea know what it means to suffer for their faith. Under the ongoing threat of war with the North, North Korea, the government forces enforces an uncompromising position on military service for young men. More than one hundred Adventists have gone to jail for refusing to bear arms. Yeah, this is today. This this age, okay? Will not go to jail. And uh, the president of Korea has served a 33-month sentence. Others have been beaten for refusing to work on the Sabbath. I bear on my body the beatings in the Navy, one pastor told me, uh, Elder Johnson wrote, we all do. And apart from physical beatings, Adventists live with a stigma of being branded as a cult by other Christians. So that's the question. What is happening? And by the way, this happened in, in, uh, in Czechoslovakia. I've got stories here of people who have suffered for, for taking the position now what is happening in the Adventist Church people say oh but that's not what our position is recently in the 2008 Adventist Review there was an article by the president of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists uh, Elder pa- Paulson, Elder Young Paulson and the title of this article World Church Leader reaffirms, notice the word reaffirms Adventist Church's non-competent position Some people are not even aware of it. If you ask Adventists, what is our position? They have forgotten. So here it is. Let me tell you briefly. In the article, and I have a copy of the article here, the article was clear thinking about military service. In the article, the world church leader explains that deciding to carry arms puts, I'm quoting, the spiritual and moral foundations of your life in serious jeopardy. Referencing a resolution made by the church in the 5th General Conference session in 18, not 19, in 1867, Paulson, the president of the General Conference, says, quote, This has in broad terms been our guiding principle. When you carry arms, you imply that you are prepared to use them to take another's life. And... Taking the life of one of God's children, even that of our quote-unquote enemy, is inconsistent with what we hold to be sacred and right. General Conference President. Some of the people might not be aware of it. This is what we hold. Paulson then said, he admits, he said, although there are more and more church members who are taking combat positions, by the way, in from in the United States, 7,500 Adventists in the United States are, con- are currently engaged in combat positions seven and a half thousand paulson maintains the church's position has not changed did you hear what i just said the church that's the president of the general conference who said we've never changed our position he writes i have sent at times a certain ambivalence toward our historic position a sense perhaps that that was then and this is now And yet I, Paulson says, know of no reason why this should be so. By the way, let me go to the article that he wrote. This is the article. Pearson says, sorry, Pearson, Paulson says, Paulson says, The historic position of our church regarding service in the armed forces was clearly expressed some 150 years ago. The very early on in our history, against the background of the American Civil War, the consensus expressed in articles and documents of the time, as well as an 1867 General Conference resolution was unequivocal. Here's his quote, he's quoting now. Quote, from the General Conference in 1867, a position that has never changed officially. Now, we're not talking about what we do in practice, okay? We're talking about our official view. Quote, the bearing of arms or engaging in war is a direct violation of the teachings of our Savior and the spirit and letter of the law of God. Did you know that's opposition? How many of you knew that was our position? Raise your hands. By the way, look around, folks. Look how many people knew that. About eight hands here know what our position is. Somehow, we don't know what our position is. That's our official position. Pearson goes. I mean, Paulson says further, when you join the military today, you cannot keep what? The Sabbath. And by the way, I've talked to different people. I just talked with a chaplain last month. I've talked with parents of kids who are going to the military. I have been told repeatedly, when you go through boot camp you must break the Sabbath otherwise you cannot get you cannot get through the through military that's what that's what they've told me but I've never been to boot camp but they've told me incidentally when Elder Pearson wrote that uh, Paulson uh, Elder Paulson wrote that article I keep getting mixed up with Pearson there was Robert Pearson this is Paulson okay Jan Paulson when Elder Paulson wrote that article there was a flurry of responses June July September October oh people didn't like what he said Most or many people were complaining and didn't like what was being said. By the way, as I said, I just talked with a chaplain, a former military chaplain. And he was saying to me, Ron, if you're a pastor and a chaplain and your soldier has to do something on Sabbath, are you going to kick him out of church? Are you going to disfellowship him if he has to do something on the Sabbath? Because of, in order to save, uh, you know, let's say he's got, and by the way, they gave me the actual illustration of a man who... He um, worked on communication, keeping uh, the airplane, uh, the the pilots in touch with ground and all that. And this guy became an Adventist while he was in the military. And his his boss let him off every Sabbath except one Sabbath. He said, I need you. You're the only one who can keep communication going. We're having some exercises, some field exercises coming up. We need you on that Sabbath alone. And this... uh, uh, Former military chaplain said to me, "Are you going to now, uh, you know, censure him if he goes to work on that one Sabbath because it's really needed?" I said, "Look, if one of my members works at Walmart and uh, they need him to bring in very important supplies to keep the store going for that one Sabbath, I'm going to say ah, it's okay. One Sabbath is not a problem." And this guy looked at me and said, "I get your point." <laughs> What's the difference whether you're in the military or out? If you're breaking the Sabbath, you are breaking the Sabbath. How can you make a difference? Now, I'm going to warn you, folks, part of the problem we're having such an issue on this military service, caution, is because our history has been rewritten. Are you listening to me? Our history has been rewritten. Unfortunately, and I know the guys, by the way, I know them personally. They are personal friends of mine. The historians in our church... A few of them are rewriting our history I have the actual articles right here Okay, by the way, here are some articles that say, oh well, you know It's all a matter of your conscience Wait a minute, I'm married If I see another young lady I like And I decide I'm going to go and sleep with her I'm saying, hey, it's a matter of conscience I decide suddenly we have this conscience idea when it comes to killing and when it comes to Sabbath breaking it's a matter of conscience if you're in the military but they won't allow me to do that when I see another attractive young lady no, that's not a matter of conscience it's a matter of what does the word of God teach and we're going to get to that we'll get to the the, the fourth commandment we'll get to the sixth commandment in a little bit hold on, we're not there yet since when have we given people latitude of conscience you can steal, you can lie no, no, we say be faithful unto what? to death so unfortunately our history has been rewritten i brought with examples today right here i won't give you the authors but here are two examples in the evidence review there was an article published back in 19 notice the year 1991 during what did anybody know your history Desert Storm, you're right. The first Gulf War. And a lot of American young people went into the military then. And so what did they do? A revisionist. You know what a revisionist is? A revisionist is an Adventist who rewrites our history to support our practice. This revisionist Adventist historian rewrote our history to support killing in war and he try he, he concocted a history that is not true by the way, i've got all the documentation to show the actual story here is the evidence by the way i talked with elder bill johnson the editor of the review at that time and i complained i said you guys are rewriting evidence history to support your own practices the practice of the church and so i have the documentation here it is not true by the way what is happening evidence in time of war this guy claims that Ellen White says oh don't disfellowship someone if they join the military Uh, it's their own conscientious conviction there is no truth to that whatsoever and I got the documents right here if you want to look at later on in fact just this chaplain I was talking to just last month the chaplain quoted the story and I said yes I've got the documentation that's a that's what's the best word fiction that's not history Okay? They have come up with their own story to support killing in war. One example. Second example, another story called The Amazing Life of El Al-Conradi. The same thing. They tried to say that Ellen White supported killing in war. Again, a major problem. I went to the author of this one and I said to him, let's call him Bill. Bill, why did you write what you did? He said, I didn't do that. The editors at the review changed my story. So I called up the editors at the review. I said, hey, hey, who edited this article? It turned out to be a, a, a cousin of my wife. One of the editors. So I said, hey, hey, you know, he's my wife's cousin. I said, can you get me the article? Here's the letter I wrote to him. And sure enough, I said, listen. He said, I'll send you my edited article. Here it is. And he said, and I will send you the article by your friend Bill. Here it is. And so he sent me, and Bill's handwriting's on there. And guess what? The editor never changed it. It was Bill who rewrote our history to support killing in war. Bill either intentionally or unintentionally gave me the wrong information i didn't say lie trying to be nice okay and and then i also went back and studied the original documents i have all the original documents that bill tries to use to twist the history in support of killing in war i've got the original documents here there is no evidence at all that ellen white supported killing in war as the modern historians are twisting our history to do are you listening to me I'm sorry to say, folks, be careful what you read in the average review. Okay? Do you hear what I'm saying? Be careful. I'm not saying don't read it. (laughs) Okay, there's a big difference, but be careful. And I wrote a letter to the editor, they published it, where I complained about the twisting of our history to support this type of thing. So what am I saying, folks? We are in a dangerous position where our history has been convoluted in order to support killing in war. It's not true. And you know what? What's more dangerous is this. Besides the twisting of our history to support killing in war, which is contradicting our position, our official position, there's a gentleman that I also met. He is a practicing homosexual. One of the leaders in a a group called Kinship International. Have you heard of SDA, Kinship International? It's called SDA. They are people who claim to be practicing Adventists, but they are also actively practicing homosexuals. And this gentleman is one of the leaders, and I've spoken to him. I've spoken to him at length. He even told me about his husband he lives with. Are you listening to me? And he claims to be an Adventist he interviewed me once for something and I, when, I was, when he was done I said now look I know who you are, do you mind if I interview you <laughs> and I did he said on condition, you don't let people know right here because I've got some agree-. I said fine, I'm not going to advertise who you are Okay, so, so I, you know, I'm not talking about him as a person I'm talking about he, what he does he's a practicing homosexual and he wrote an article about Adventists in the military this is what he says, an entire article that was published in the journal of the American Academy of Religion a secular journal about Adventists and the military and this professor of sociology says and he's right he says Adventists took a strong view against the military being in the military for one killing number two Sabbath breaking then he goes further he said that is our official doctrinal position we took that view 1867 then he goes further and he said however look around at what we practice People go to war, we kill in war, and there's no disfellowshipping. We have changed our view, not officially, but in practice. Therefore, notice his logic, just as we have morphed from being against killing in war and breaking the Sabbath, here's the article, just as we have in practice changed our view, not on a biblical basis, not on a theology, but in practice, just as we've done that, guess what? We've been against homosexuality, practicing homosexuals for all this time, let's keep up with the culture, let's keep up with the times we don't have to change our view officially, let's just change it in practice do you follow what I'm saying? that's what he's promoting in this article okay, this is what he says, and you see he's arguing for consistency in our our, not in our doctrines but in the way we ignore our official views (laughs) so that he can be accepted and he can be a practicing, fully accepted Adventists. That's what he's trying to do. Now, when I read that, I went to the the general conference. I did research there. I've collected materials for the last 30 years or more on this issue. I've, I've changed some of my own views on this, by the way. I've had to go through the changing of views because of the biblical material. Make a long story short, a pastor who came out of the military he uh we started talking a past in michigan and when i found out he was in the military and he wanted to write on the issue because he lived in the military he was in there for seven years i talked with him and i said you know what i've got material i've been collecting for 30 years if you're interested you can use it but i can't give it to you i can get photocopies and he's he paid 120 dollars to photocopy 30 years of material <laughs> And he went ahead and wrote his own book. It's right here, I Pledge Allegiance. You can actually get it from the of Firm booth. I'm going to recommend this book. It's not just I who am recommending this book, I Pledge Allegiance, by Pastor Carl Tsatabasidis and the man who, his name is first because he was in the military, Pastor Keith Phillips. That book now is recommended through the General Conference Biblical Research Institute Newsletter. To all pastors, they are recommending this book. And this is what they say about this book. Listen carefully. The book deserves to be read widely. The general principles it sets forth. I pledge allegiance. Here's a book I'm recommending to you deserve to be taken seriously by any Seventh-day Adventist. It, this book, provides a welcome challenge to some distorted perspectives on this issue and may help redirect some Adventist practices to be more in harmony with the supreme example of Jesus Christ. That was the Biblical Research Institute. They are recommending that. Now I've got to pause here. Tell you you know what's interesting, by the way. Um, Biblical research also uh, recommended another book. I'll get to in a minute. But I know there's been a big debate. So open your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 20. We're going to go to the two main reasons we, as Seventh Day Adventists, in 1867, took a strong, clear stand on the issue of the military. Let's go to those two reasons in Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to give you the biblical reasons for this. Two reasons for this issue exodus chapter 20 right in the ten commandments and yes we'll get to the issue of war this morning somebody came to me and said what about david who killed goliath we'll we'll get to that hold on okay but let's first go to the to the passage here exodus chapter 20 you know the passage from Uh, verse 8 through 11 what does it say remember the sabbath day to keep it holy six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is the sabbath of the Lord your God and it continues right now so here's the first reason we have to take a position you say on the sabbath how are you going to keep the sabbath when you're in the military and I just talked with a friend of mine let's call him uh, you know Alex And I I know Alex for years. I said, Alex, I understand. How are you doing? Fine. How are your boys? Well, you know, one boy has got got mental challenges. And how's the other boy? Well, he kind of pauses. He finished academy. He was never baptized. And he's gone into the military. I said, tell me about it. He said, well, you see, he's not been baptized. The father has hope. He says... Alex, I'm calling him. My boy, when they asked the religious affiliation, he put their Seventh-day Adventist. I said, Alex, tell me, what does this mean? Does your son, can your son in the military keep the Sabbath? And the father immediately replied, he said, when you go through boot camp, my son told me it's 24-7. Twenty-four-seven, you cannot, there's no chance. Again, by the way, I'm listening to people whose kids are there. I'm listening to chaplains. I'm trying to listen widely. I've not been through boot camp, but I've been told repeatedly by different sources. When you go into the military, you can't keep the Sabbath, at least through boot camp, especially now when you don't have a chance. When it's a draft, apparently, I've been told, in the draft, you can say, I'm being drafted, I don't want to go. You have some kind of a choice. You've heard that, right? But when it's a voluntary military, I have it repeatedly, from every source, you have no choice. You, you end up breaking the Sabbath. Very interesting. So the fourth commandment is crucial. Do we believe that the fourth commandment is important? Do we believe that? Yes. Right? How are we going to keep them now, now, please don't say, oh, but Dr. Dupre, uh, I've, watched, uh, I've watched, quote, unquote, California Adventists, how we sometimes call the people who live here, hey, I'm a California Adventist. Okay, so be careful now. But anyway, uh, I, I'm moving back to Michigan. But I've been a California Adventist. And sometimes we look down on the, the, the left coast, you know what they call it, uh, the west coast. And they say, ah, you California Adventists, they go out to dinner on, on Sabbath after church. And, and they do all kinds of strange things. Listen, we don't have human beings at our, as our example. Who is our example? First Peter chapter 2 verse 21. For to this you were called, for Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow his steps. Jesus is our example. Okay, he's our example, not California Adventist or whichever kind of Adventists. So we're not going to find excuses to do what we want to do. The question is, what should we do? We need to keep this wonderful day the seventh day Sabbath holy that's a major issue when you go into the military and Elder Paulson GC president has recognized that in his article clear thinking about military service but now let's go down to verse 13 verse 13 now I have I have the New King James what is the the New King James says you shall not murder what does the King James say thou Thou shalt not kill most modern translations say what anybody know what modern translations say murder yes most modern translations say murder most old translations say kill which is right w- ah very interesting I'm gonna make a long study short because here's an entire book on that one word uh-huh whole book written by none other than a Roman Catholic scholar the title of the book you shall not kill or you shall not murder Ah, there is a question Okay, you shall not kill or you shall not murder, written by Wilma, a lady, Wilma Ann Bailey. By the way, how did I find out about this book? General Conference Biblical Research. Biblical researchers do. They sent information about this book to all the pastors through the conferences to tell the pastors about this because this book shows categorically what's happened in the Bibles. Fascinating and scary. Now, before the book came out, I had actually already written uh, material. I'd done this my own study way back and on one sheet of paper, I did a study of is it kill or is it murder. In that verse, it says literally, and I'm giving you the Hebrew now, the Hebrew says, lo tirzach. In simple terms, never Ratzach. Huh, what is Ratzach? That's Hebrew. Very interesting. The word Ratzach is the Hebrew word that is used for somebody who hates his neighbor or her neighbor and who comes and stabs them to death. That's called what in simple English? Murder. But the same word Ratzach is used more often. Did you hear It's used more often by Moses to talk about a guy, for example, Deuteronomy 19, who's out in the woods and he is busy chopping down a tree. And as he's chopping down the tree, De- Deuteronomy chapter 19, it says, the axe head flies off. De- sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 4, I said 19. Uh, it's ch- chapter 4, verse 42, and 19, verse 3, 4, and 6. In Deuteronomy 4 and verse 19, it says the axe head flies off and ratsachs the other man. Did he do it intentionally? No, the Bible is very clear, and then he has to do what? Flee where? To the city of refuge. Numbers chapter 35. He flees to the city of refuge, and when he's there, they investigate. Did this guy do it intentionally, or did this exit really fly, uh, you know, accidentally? Was it intentional or accidental? They check it out. When they find it's accidental, what do they do? Set him free? No. What? you kidding it was an accident he didn't mean to do that number 35 is categorically clear even in the Old Testament under the civil laws of Israel if you killed somebody accidentally and it's proven by the way if you killed somebody intentionally what happens under Old Testament civil law what happened to you death penalty yes under Israel right and by the way the word for death penalty is a different hebrew word from thou shall not kill it's a completely different word so there's no confusion in their minds we in english get confused okay there's no difference there's for us there's no difference kill kill no it says do not ratsach. but when it says capital punishment it uses a different word completely in english do not execute and it was always through the uh, the urim and the thummim you remember that or through the priest, always God who directs that. And we'll get to that further because God knows when people are really guilty. You know what's happened nowadays. People have been proven innocent after they've been executed. Okay? So I've got a problem with the death penalty, uh, human wise, because we don't know when people have been guilty or not. For sure okay and by the way in Old Testament death penalty it was death penalty not just for murder it was a death penalty for homosexuality death penalty for kids who are disobedient to their parents (laughs) okay so let's be careful about picking and choosing in the in the Old Testament uh, times but let's go back so what happens if it has been proven that the man is innocent he didn't mean to kill his neighbor that man doesn't go free he has to remain in the city of refuge until the high priest dies And when the high priest dies, the high priest's death atones for the unintentional sin of killing accidentally. Life is so sacred that you couldn't, you weren't supposed to even kill. That means, folks, practical application when you drive down the road, drive carefully. Okay? Human life was sacred. All right? Put your seatbelt on. Practical application so when we go back we find that the word Ratzach is used both for intentional killing and unintentional killing that's why the 2001 new English translation which came out went back to you shall not kill and in a footnote they say the word covers both let's not pick and choose but you know what happened in the United States as this book reveals it's a shocker now I don't want to undermine your belief and your trust in God's word all I'm saying is be careful of translations this lady shows that after the second world war from 1946 onwards in the united states the translators intentionally changed from thou shalt not kill to thou shalt not murder on a cultural basis there's no linguistics there's no semantic there's no language reason whatsoever they changed it to thou shalt not murder so that americans could go to war and kill without their conscience bothering them this book shows it proves it Culturally, theologically, biblically, semantically, there is no support for you must not murder. It is you must not kill. That's what it is. Now, by the way, I just entered this in as as evidence in that court-martial case in which I was down in Biloxi, Mississippi. When I was at the court-martial case, I took this along, and the lawyer, the defense lawyer, borrowed the book from me because he wanted to get this as evidence to get that guy sprung if i can use the word to get him free from his commitment to the military because he wanted out of the military because he said i'm convicted that i shouldn't kill another human being period and so this is the book you shall not kill you shall not murder and i i said this young man is correct the word is not you shall not murder the the term is you shall not kill he is taking a right stand that he cannot be involved in any killing of human beings and so the good news the prosecuting attorney a lady and a lawyer for the military Listen to the case, and it's gone all the way up now, it's on the way all the way up to the Pentagon to release this young man because he has serious conscientious convictions based upon biblical data and so he is by God's grace we're hoping he will eventually be set free completely from any of his obligations by the way he's willing to repay everything he's willing to do service to go and work amongst the Indians as a community service for years he's not willing he doesn't want to get out easy he's just saying I cannot go into the military and participate in the act of destroying another human being's life I cannot do that this, by the way, is the article sent out by Biblical Research from the General Conference on that book, telling us about that book, which I bought as a result. So in a nutshell, folks, the, the author's name is Wilma Ann Bailey. Wilma Ann Bailey. I got it to Amazon.com for like 10 bucks. It's really worth it, and it's an eye-opener to show you what's happened, how culture impacts what translators do so that people won't feel guilty about their sins anymore. Scary. That's why I prefer some of these old Bibles, okay? Because old Bibles were not so culturally influenced as these are. Make a long story short, folks. It is very clear when you go back, and I have an article in this book, um, as well as in that book, I Pledge Allegiance, uh, an entire chapter in here on this very issue of is it do not kill or do not murder? So if you go and get a copy of this book at Admin's Affirm you, uh, booth right here, you can get that chapter on is it kill or is it murder that I wrote. Now, I want to pause here because I know... Very clearly, the the evidence is overwhelming about the issue of killing in war. By the way, the issue always comes up, but what about Israel? Didn't God send them in? I'm going to give you a website to go to. And there's an article there that I want you to download. It's only eight pages long. It's the best article that I've ever read. That's eight eight, eight pages instead of 80 or 800. You know, many of us have these huge books and articles. Here is an eight page article called God and War in the Old Testament. That's the name of the article, but here's the, the website. It's called A-T as in Tom, S as in Sam, A-T-S, J-A-T-S, atsjats.org. You got that? dot org. Go to that website, click on there, go to the archives, and go to Winandi, W-I-N-A-N-D-Y. There's only one article by Winandi there. Dr. Pierre Winandi, uh, retired Swiss... Seventh-day Adventist professor W-I-N-A-N-D-Y or go to the article God and War in the Old Testament here is an eight-page summary I'm going to abbreviate it into about eight lines Okay, Dr. Winandi shows clearly and without question that when you study the Bible comprehensively very interesting thing happens and he goes back to the spirit of prophecy as well and finds corroboration he shows that it was never God's intention ever for Israel to go and fight Never. Absolutely. He says this. He shows the biblical material and Ellen White, and he says, shows on the Bible, God says, I will take care of the enemy. By the way, who's the great giver of life? Who's the giver of life? God. And if people reject the life giver, what is the result? Yes. And we know God will ultimately have a strange act by removing those who cling to sin. So the life giver has, a result, has the, the, the right to remove the life from those who reject Him, right? By the way, and that word, Ratzach, is not used when God takes life. It's a different word. There's no conflict there again. Okay? So God has the right to do that because God knows the heart, folks. Doesn't He? God knows when people have totally, ultimately, irreversibly rejected Him. Am I right? Like the time of the flood. Like the time of Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. And by the way, if God makes a mistake now well, we know He doesn't but if God does make a mistake and, and, and remove people He can always resurrect them right? <laughs> so, okay so, so let's leave the taking of life up to God as the life giver are we together here? Yeah. alright so God is the life giver and God can remove the life from those who've rejected the life giver Now, it was never God's intention for Israel ever to go to war. However, and I'm paraphrasing, remember when they wanted a Saul, uh, a king, they said, and they got Saul, give us a king. Why? So that we can be like the other nations. We want the king to lead us into war like the other nations around us. And God said basically, you want to have it? You're going to suffer, but I'll let you do whatever you want. Go ahead in a nutshell they wanted to be like everybody else and god then said as as a loving parent who says to the kid i don't like the way you're cutting your hair but you know i love you still. you can still live in my home even though your hairstyle is outlandish i still love you Okay. God, like a loving parent, was there. Now, by the way, as I said before, I don't recommend any material, any article, any book, 100%, except the Word of God, the Bible, and the writings of Ellen White. So Dr. Winani's article, again, I give about a 95% endorsement. are always one or two things that we might quibble about, but the, the tenor, the whole concept of the article is wonderful. So read that article. It solves all the problems, and you begin to understand why God allowed His recalcitrant, hard-headed people to do what they wanted to do. And like a loving parent, it says, I love you and you'll see the results of this but don't go this way we got about what 15 minutes more yeah 20 minutes we end at the quarter till five i believe so i, I gotta go now so the, the the message is quite clear when we go to scripture now david well he was in a war i said to you he wanted to do the, those israelites wanted to be like the other nations and god said okay you want to do that you know i'm here as a loving parent you want to do it go ahead parents often do that so the kids can bump their heads and learn isn't that true if you know if you're a parent God allowed Israel to do this but Dr. Winandi's article is clear in showing it was always God's will remember the time that 185,000 died in Sennacherib's army one angel took care of them. the people didn't have to lift a finger remember the time that there was the uh, the the hailstones and then the time of the flood and the time of Sodom and Gomorrah all different illustrations in scripture where God took care of them The who is it that uh, killed themselves in the morning I just trying to remember they saw the 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 uh, thing that looked like blood, and they said, Oh, and they, all kinds of stories in the Bible how people fought against each other because God would be in control if we would allow Him to do that. He will take care of the enemy. We don't have to step in. Now, I know people saying, But if we don't, if we don't, Dr. Debray, what's going to happen? Uh, uh, the whole nation will be wiped out. Ah, pause for a moment. Think of Mordecai. Write this down Esther chapter 3. We're not going to go time there, but I want you to think about it because you you know the story so well, how Esther and Mordecai at that point in their lives, they decided to stand faithful though the heavens fall. Mordecai refuses to bow worshipfully before Haman. Haman has a death decree made for how many people? An entire nation. Think about this. Think about the implications. If your whole nation is going to be destroyed simply because you refuse to bow before one guy, what are you going to say? Oh, God will understand. Yeah, I, I better worship this man because I need to save my whole nation. Is that what Mordecai did? Are, we, are you listening to me, folks? Mordecai stood firm as a rock even when an entire nation's existence was at stake. And guess what? God stepped in through another way. It's His people. Let God take care of it. God is the giver of life. He is the one, Job says, Naked came I, naked will I return. God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Trust God. Let Him take care of it. Mordecai stood firm, and God took care of the situation really God is in charge so don't be afraid of that and saying oh I've got to do this I've got to do that now I'm going to go into now again as I said in my earlier session time to pull your feet in folks do me a favor pull your feet in (laughs) why am I asking you to do that I'm going to start stepping on some toes here and I'm going to give you time for questions at the end we'll spend a few minutes here in dialogue but so many times we have missed the mark and we don't understand the full story there is a conscientious objector. Now we go into the issue of medics. We've talked about combatancy, killing, and Sabbath-keeping. We've dealt with that, hopefully enough. And by the way, the, one of the most important principles now, we're going to look at this Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. We've looked at it before. Open your Bibles to that, Matthew 5, 44 and 45. We've looked at Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11 and verse 13. And I'm telling you why the Adventist church officially took a position against war, killing in war, or Sabbath breaking under any situation. Now we're going to Matthew 5, verse 44 and 45. And we're going to look at what we often discuss as the issue of medics in the military. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your whom? enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Here's the reason. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The issue of medics in the military. A very, very important issue. Years ago, years ago, there was a book that came out uh in the year nineteen sixty-seven. How many of you were alive in nineteen sixty-seven? Raise your hands. Five people. I'm number six. So this is before your time. Here's a book called The Unlikeliest Hero. The unlikeliest hero? The story of Desmond T. Doss, the soldier who wouldn't touch a gun. Now, Desmond Doss has passed away two or three years ago, I believe it was. And so I'm not here to undermine Desmond Doss at all. I just read the story. Read the story. Go back to this, by the way. Please don't watch the movie called The Conscientious Objector. Don't watch the movie. That is a Hollywoodized perversion of this book. Did you hear what I just said? I'm here to preach the message straight, right? It is not what this book portrays. This book shows Desmond Doss, as we say, with all of his warts. You know all of his warts? shows the compromises that is the one where it glorifies him as this great guy this one shows the many problems and the many compromises it's not conscientious objector, it's conscientious compromiser it's a fact, here's the book but nobody talks about this book, we all talk about the movie so actually I'm busy working on a book on this 30 years of material and I have a chapter in there that's going to be called The Desmond Dossier Okay, that's the French word, you know, for all the military documentation. So I'm busy working on this because I want to look at the real story of Desmond Doss. Ellen White, when she talks about the Bible, she says the Bible tells the true story. It reveals both the faults and the righteousness of its characters. We've raised Desmond Doss up to this great hero uh, who is all standing firm for the Lord. The story of Desmond Doss, published in 1967, 41 years ago, is a different story. I don't want to minimize the fact that yes he was misused he was abused people threw shoes boots at him when he tried to pray I don't want to to, uh, minimize his courage I wish that I had 10 percent of the man's courage okay are you with me here we're not talking about his courage and the way he was mistreated that's not the issue the question is what happens in the book according to the story that he tells Desmond Doss tells what he did and the multiple compromisers and I'm collecting other material uh, shall I shock you here I asked you to put your toes in so it's okay I'm stepping by right now I'm stepping otherwise I'm going to step on toes you know what he actually according to other material it's not in this book I have another source he wanted to go home on weekends on Sabbaths they wouldn't let him off every Sabbath so he connived you know what connive means not a positive word he connived with the guy at the gate that he would every weekend he would come and say my girlfriend Dorothy is sick so so he could have Sabbaths off I don't know how many Sabbaths he did that but what was he doing? telling the truth? he was lying breaking the ninth commandment to keep the fourth what does James chapter 2 verse 10 and 11 say? if you break one commandment you're guilty of what? of all when you read the story of Desmond Doss you find compromises yes right from the beginning Desmond Doss's motivation to be a medic very clear you read the book very clear is to was to treat everyone to love your enemy to treat the enemy and the American soldiers and Doss tells in this book the very first time he went to treat enemy soldiers American GIs put a gun to his head and said Doss you treat those soldiers those enemies and you're a dead man what did Doss do the man of courage go ahead and shoot me guys but I and to love my enemy and to treat them evenly. Did he do that? No. He wouldn't be alive to tell the rest of the story. He compromised. Let's read the story for what it's worth. He compromised. And from that point in time, from the very first time he tried to treat the enemy, from that point in time, Desmond Doss never treated the enemy. He says it himself. From that point in time, from the beginning, he was part and parcel of the military. An integral part. So much so that, um, let me read you let me read you stuff, so you'll, you'll see the, the point here. Army instructors and instruction manuals point out that men will fight and kill with more enthusiasm and take more risks if they know that a competent medic is backing them up. In fact, in the story, they even said to Dust, we won't go out to fight unless you're there. Desmond Dust was the backbone of the killing. Fascinating. Hold on, I'll give, you, I'll give you a solution in a minute. Okay, I'm not saying we should do nothing. Oh, we'll get there. Let me read a little further. Okay, a medic is told that on the battlefield he should first attend to those most capable of returning to combat. Not the worst wounded. Somebody can be dying, let them die. Of your own care, guys, let them die. What should you do? Patch up the guys who are least wounded. Why? And to return them so that they can go back to fight and kill then you turn your attention to those who are dying your purpose as a medic is to keep fighting and killing okay although the army does not deny the life-saving role of the medic the language employed in training strategies training stresses far more his role in the maintenance of an effective fighting force both by bandaging wounds and by boosting morale a further consideration is that if the medic were really in the army for the purpose of saving lives he would have to give absolutely equal consideration to the enemy and Desmond Doss found that out from the very first time he tried to be a true medic the sad news is Desmond Doss was never a true medic did you hear what I just said? never he was an American military morale booster I know I'm shocking you, I asked you to pull your toes, feet in so I wouldn't step on your toes I'm glad you did let me give you the rest of the news this now comes from those guys who train the medics this is in the news 2005 okay, what do they do? how do they train the medics? listen carefully, one medic on his weapon nowadays they train the medics the first thing they do is to train you how to kill, according to this article okay, one medic on his weapon, returning fire can make the difference between the enemy staying and continuing to fire on us or saying, whoa, I gotta go so what do they do? All new army medics take civilian medical technician classes and they study, they study battlefield techniques. Master Sergeant Luis Rodriguez, the non-commissioned officer, the NCO in charge of the training at the school, is a former medic who was hit by mortar fire in, in, Iraq. in Iraq. He lost his leg, but the use of a tourniquet helped save his life. He said, he said the first thing he tells the medics he's training them is that the enemy will fire at them even if they are rendering aid and they must be prepared to fight the first thing medic be prepared to fight therefore Rodriguez says this is by the way at the headquarters of training the medics in the United States the most important piece of equipment isn't your aid bag it's your rifle that's for the medic Did you know that? How many of you knew that? That the most important thing for the medic is your rifle. Let me see the hands of those who knew that. One hand, two hands. You see that? That's the most important thing. So let's recognize it. Let's not step around and say, oh, the medic is there to save life. No, the medic's most important is the rifle. Obviously, if you're at the front lines and you can see the enemy, then they're arguing, kill the enemy so they won't shoot your guys where you have to patch more people up. Logically, it makes sense. (laughs) Now, by the way, I'm not suggesting you do nothing. What is the suggestion solution for Adventists? Let me read you one paragraph here. In contrast, however, if Adventists and other non combatants were to join the International Red Cross, notice not the American Red Cross, the International Red Cross or a similar organization, they would be offering their services wherever and for whomever they were required, making no distinction among nationalities international red cross they go into the into the fighting zones again i'm not saying sit back and do nothing you want to do something in the war you want to save life join the international red cross where you can save life indiscriminately and help people the worst wounded to keep them uh, to get them out of the military to get them out of the fighting the worst wounded that's what they do one more thing before we take questions ah this one is really gonna be a doozy what about military chaplains oh, oh, what about military chaplains I was a civilian chaplain you know what a civilian chaplain is working as a pastor and reaching out into the military to uh, reach people in the military I was not a military chaplain civilian by the way working outside huh are you ready at the May 20 1943 spring meeting of the general conference committee convening in New York City The following statement was voted. Quote, Military chaplains are ministers of religion to the men in the armed forces. They, chaplains, are employed by the government and are remunerated, paid for, from public funds for the teaching of religion. This is a practice which is in clear violation of biblical principles concerning the separation of church and state did you know that? we actually voted a military chaplain paid by the military by the way, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't reach out I just told you, I was a civilian chaplain but when you are paid by the military I have friends who have been who are military chaplains and it's a fact did you know that there are evangelical chaplains who have been fired from the military for what? for saying, in Jesus' name, amen. They fired. You can't pray in Jesus' name. Why not? That's sectarian. You aren't allowed to. You're paid by the military. You have to even pray as they tell you, or you're fired. Did you hear that? So this is what was voted in 1943. It's a violation of the separation of church and state because you're paid by them. How can you be paid to treat religion? So that is the point that was made. Very interesting. They told us that way back then. Let's finish up here. Let me just uh, share with you here in closing, and we'll take questions. Two statements, and then uh, um, we want to take those challenges that you might raise or support. Listen carefully. The Adventist statements on war in 1865, 1868 and 1898 seem to be the only bright spots of proactive, coherent thought on war and military services in early Adventist history. At these times, in the 1800s, Adventists made strong, unequivocal statements in opposition to war and any involvement in war. The pacifist position, I don't like the terms, the writer uses it, I prefer the peacemaking position, it's active. The pacifist position, he says, seems to be the only coherently Christian position to pursue in this world of incessant violence and constant warring. Before we end off here, and I'm going to give one Bible text as we end off. Another writer, this is a non-Evanist, says this. It seems strange. In the context of Matthew chapter 5, 44 and 45, that says love your enemies. It seems strange to us that people who follow the greatest peacemaker of all time should be so pro-war, so militaristic go to one verse now Romans chapter 12 let's go to one more verse and get the principle here then we pause for any questions uh, that you might want to ask as we close our session let's first have this on Romans chapter 12 and notice the principle here and by the way, I've got stories and illustrations I can share for a lot more. As I said, I'm busy collecting materials now for 30 years. And I've been reading extensively in this issue. And I'm talking to people, listening to their stories. And uh, myself, am, uh, you am know, involved in the issue to find the, a better way Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. As I said at the beginning, let God take care of it. Therefore, verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire in his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. Basic Christian principle, let's find ways to overcome evil with good, to repay others in a wonderful, kind way. I think of the Iraq War. I say, wouldn't it have been wonderful if Adventists went over there to reach people, and that was our mission, instead of go out there to kill people? Imagine what an impact we could have made if we had the right mission and the right service in mind going back to our official position as voted in the 1800s and instead of following the practices we followed as we've fallen away from our official position that we've never, ever changed. I want to pray firstly before we ask questions because I know some of you might have to leave, so we'll kind of round this off. But I know it's been a challenging session. I'll be willing to stay for a good 15, 20 minutes or longer for question and answer. But let's just pray that God will continue to challenge us and to guide us as we deal with this very, very difficult topic. Because ultimately, I want to see the hands. How many of you, regardless of issues, want to be found faithful to Jesus when He comes? That's what I want to be. Let's pray. Holy Father, you see the hands. We want to be found faithful. Father, you've changed my view on the topic. You've changed others' views, including Joel Klimkiewicz that we mentioned at the beginning. He was willing to spend seven months in prison. Over 100 Koreans have spent time in prison, unwilling to bear arms or to break the Sabbath. Father, I pray that you'll bring about a genuine reformation and revival in the lives of many who have slipped away from our voted position of being there to save life and not to take life of breaking the Sabbath instead of keeping it. Forgive us where we've fallen short. Forgive us where we've slipped away. Thank you for being such a forgiving father. Thank you for being that kind of person who is ready to welcome back the prodigal son. Lord, we love you. Keep us faithful. We want to be faithful. We want to be found faithful when Jesus comes. In his name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC. Generation of Youth for Christ If you would like to learn more about GYC please visit www.gycweb.org Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons please visit www.audioverse.org